0: Well, good morning, beloved. It is time to give our attention to God's word this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29. And as you turn there, I'm gonna offer a word of prayer for us. So let's pray. Father, we pray now that you would speak to us in your word. We have been spending time this morning speaking to you and speaking to each other in songs and prayers we pray now that you would speak and that you would give us ears to hear. Lord, help us to listen. Help us to, to sit up right now on our couches or uh, at, our, at our breakfast tables. Help us to lean into your word. Uh, help us to drink from your word. Um, and, and Lord, we pray, quench our thirst. And stir us up, Lord, we pray, to love and good deeds. Stir us up with fresh zeal to do your work. Cause us, O Lord, to abound in good works, we pray. For the glory of your name, for the spread of the gospel, for the growth of your church and the blessing of the block, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, beloved, we continue our series that we've called Bless the Block. It's a series, as we've been saying, that we hope God will use to stir in our hearts a zeal and a commitment to a practical ministry in our community. We pray that he use Jeremiah 29:49 as a kind of blueprint for organizing us as a church and moving us out as a church toward our neighbors and our communities, seeking both the flourishing of the church as well as the flourishing of the community we've been considering the fact that we are exiles in this world as god's covenant people elect exiles Uh, and the exile experience of ancient israel is therefore instructive to us uh, the exile church and what god commanded of ancient israel Um, is has application to us as a church because Christ has come he is the true Israel and because he has made himself a new covenant people these words through Christ through the gospel through the kingdom are applicable to us now as a church and so we want to understand what God has said in his word we want to read the Old Testament and Jeremiah 29 particularly this morning as Christian scripture uh, in light of Christ's completed work and we want to apply it to our lives. So far, we have considered a couple of things. Number one, as I said a moment ago, that we are exiles. We are people who live not where we determine, but where God determines. We are sent people. Uh, And so the whole earth is the place of our exile, but more particularly in terms of the mission of ARC, Southeast DC is the place of our exile as God's covenant people. Now we're on exile, uh, but God has not forgotten us. God still speaks to us, God still saves, um, God still sins. And, and so we are looking to this God even as we endure this exile. And God has told us, told us a, a couple of things that we've already considered. Number one, that we should build houses and live in them, that we should um, uh, supply our own need for, for homes and, and flourish in those homes. And number two, we should plant gardens and eat their produce. Uh, So likewise, our hands should, should be supplying our need for food. We should take control of the means of production, not live in dependence upon man, not live in dependence upon government, but in fact live in dependence upon God using all that he has given us, even as exiles, to seek our own flourishing and to seek to bless the community in which we live. Well, We come now to a third command in God's Word. It's in verse 6 of Jeremiah 29. Uh, And and we're going to spend our time in that verse um, for this sermon. But I want to read from verses 4 to 9 for context, and then we'll come back to verse 6. So look with me in Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. This morning, if you're taking notes, I want to organize our thoughts along three lines. Number one, God commands we marry and multiply. God commands the exile community here to marry and multiply. Number two our community needs strong marriages. Our community needs strong marriages. And Then number three, as we have been doing, we want to consider the application for us. We need, ARC, we need a strategy for building strong marriages. We need a strategy for obeying God here. So look again with me at the command. God commands we marry and multiply. We see that in verse six. Take wives and have sons and daughters Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear uh, sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. This verse gives us the command really in two parts a compound command. First, the exiles must take wives, that means they must marry. And the second, they must have sons and daughters. Uh, That's that's how they are to multiply. It's through God's basic design of of marriage and procreation. I mentioned last week when we were talking about plant gardens and eat from them that you could almost see the Garden of Eden in the background of of this text. Uh, Remember in the Garden of Eden what what God did with Adam and Eve? He, He creates Adam and he prepares a place for Adam. He puts him in the garden. Then he gives Adam a job to subdue the earth, to cultivate it, to to be a a husbandman in that sense, a a farmer. And then he gives Adam a wife and a command to be fruitful and multiply. You see the parallel here in Jeremiah 29? It's as though God has marched them in captivity back to the garden. And he is calling them to a garden-like experience of flourishing in the midst of their exile. And the pattern for flourishing is basically the same pattern that was given to Adam and Eve, now given to uh, Israel. You know, come into the land, come into the place that God has prepared, subdue the land, cultivate the land, plant and eat, and marry and have children, multiply there. So God's plan for his people and for humanity has never really changed. Marriage and childbearing are kind of at the heart of, of God's um, design for flourishing and well-being. And so we, we want, if we want to flourish, we want to observe this command. We want to put it into practice. Now I say flourishing here because verse 6 is not just about survival. It's better than survival. It's thriving. We know that because of the last words in verse 6. Multiply there and do not decrease. See, obedience to the command to marry and multiply is really an act of resistance. It's an act of resistance against all of the sort of life-destroying forces and all of the life-suffocating conditions of exile. Think about those conditions. We've already considered them in, in a couple of, verses, in a, in a couple of verses. Homelessness, housing insecurity, hunger, starvation. These would have been things that the exile community face being drug off into Babylon. And these would be the kinds of things that would actually uh, threaten to destroy the people, destroy families, destroy children, destroy adults and the elderly. But marrying and having children resists all of that. It pushes back. Marriage and family affirm life and and dignity in the kinds of conditions that would seek to destroy life and dignity. So obedience to this command is in one sense uh, a faith-motivated act of resistance that ensures not just survival, That there's some more israelites around later but thriving that that community is increasing it's multiplying it's growing and it's doing well and so we got that two-part command take wives and have sons and daughters but notice now there are in this verse two parental responsibilities that that are really important the first we've already seen have sons and daughters Uh, The second parental responsibility is to secure spouses for your children when they are of marrying ages. see there in the middle of the verse, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. In other words, a, a flourishing society is one where parents prepare their children for marriage and participate in finding spouses for them. I see some of y'all uneasy right now. Right away, you're like, ah, you feel the distance between this ancient piece of scripture uh, written hundreds and hundreds of years ago and our modern sort of culture of dating. We're aware of that significant cultural difference. In fact, we might even put it on a kind of spectrum so that on one side, uh, we have the ancient Near East, the, the, the Middle Eastern culture in which this has taken place. Uh, where largely marriages were arranged by parents. Then on the other side, you have today's Western societies, like our own, where, where basically selection of, of spouses is left to the individual. And I think in some ways we need to close a gap between those two. Right? Biblically, fathers and mothers had responsibility for the chastity of their children until they were married. And also had responsibility for um, the readiness of those children to marry. And when they were marrying age, and sometimes even slightly before, um, parents would, in uh, ancient Near Eastern cultures, would arrange, as I said before, marriages between their children and a suitable spouse. And that's not just ancient culture, but... Uh, you can find that in cultures today. Uh, some traditional families in India, uh, families from traditional cultures in Africa, uh, even, even Asia, some parts of Asia. So you know, arranged marriages is a thing. Uh, and it's a thing that's served intact cultures for millennia, for, for, for centuries, right? And in those cultures, there's a recognition that marriage isn't simply about what gives you feelings and, and isn't simply about falling head over heels in love. But there's an institutional importance to marriage. There's a cultural importance to marriage and that marriage is, in one part, a means of carrying forward the culture and carrying forward well-being. In our culture, as I said, we basically leave finding a spouse to the individual and to chance. Parents will often take a, a hands-off approach not just to marriage, but also to chastity. And then later they will nervously co-sign some kind of romantic decision that their children have made. They might even kind of, for the sake of peace, kind of bite their tongues a little bit and not point out some obvious and glaring problems uh, in the relationship. Well, that's an unwise and unbiblical hands-off approach to things. Now. I'm not suggesting a return to arranged marriages, but I am suggesting a return to involve parenting, especially in decisions like marriage, which are meant to be lifelong, right? There's more involved than uh, usually individuals will recognize and, and account for. So to our celibate members, no matter how old or independent you get, remember that your parents have responsibility for you. You are a stewardship to them. God has given them to, given you to them to steward you for him. That doesn't change no matter how old you are. The, the shape of it may change, right? So you don't parent a 25-year-old the way you parent a 5-year-old. So the, the shape of it changes. But your parents are God's gift to you to help you navigate some of the biggest decisions uh, in your life. Honor them, except for the most dysfunctional circumstances. You, you're meant to, to honor your parents, to consider them, to seek their counsel, uh, even in what we think are, are intimate personal decisions, like who we marry. They have a biblical responsibility to care for you in that way. Now, this can look a million ways, but, but the point here is that a flourishing community has involved parents, parents who are involved in the lives of their children and involved in the promotion of a culture that values marriage, even to the point of helping their children to marry and carry out successful family lives. That's how a marriage culture gets built. A third thing to see here in verse six with regard to God's command, verse six really gives us a three generation vision for a healthy marriage culture. The current exiles who are being addressed in verse 6, that's the first generation. Their sons and daughters, which they, which they are commanded to have, that's the second generation. And then those sons and daughters are meant to marry and have children of their own. That's the third generation in this text. Being conquered by an enemy and carried into captivity can seem like, can make it seem like things are just over. It's a wrap. God now here speaks to his people in such a way as to indicate he has a future and a vision for them. The exile community must, must come to think, must, must think beyond their immediate needs, their personal and private needs, to consider now two generations to come. So we need a vision, not just for who we are going to marry, if if we seek to marry, if we choose to marry, we need a vision, not just for who we are going to marry, but we need a vision for the people that we are going to produce two and three generations down the road, which means we need an understanding of our exile life that does at least two things. Number one, it, it helps us to recognize that children experience exile too. They are not exempt. From exile. So so we got to have a vision for them. For raising them. For imparting wisdom to them. For imparting God's word from them. We want them to be like Timothy. uh, Whose mother and grandmother taught him the scriptures from infancy. uh, Scriptures that are able to make him wise unto salvation. We need a vision for our children. And our children must be trained in living as exiles. You know, it's common for parents to say, I want my kids' lives to be better than my own. Well, that, that, that's good and natural in its place. That's right. But we would, shouldn't want that so badly that we don't want our kids to be exiles, to be God's elect exiles, and to know how to live in exile. We actually should be training them and preparing them for that so they can, in turn, train their children and prepare their children for the same thing. If exiles, if as exiles, we lose vision for those coming generations, then we'll also often lose hope for the common generations. Here's, here's a second thing that this implies. When it comes to marriage and family then, and considering that person that you think you might wish to marry, we should ask, is this someone I can impact generations with? Is this someone I can impact Three generations with Does this person have that kind of vision and that kind of character, or does his vision stop at five o'clock today? Does vision stop with the weekend? Or 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 is he or she clicked into the fact that God has called us to do something here in the way of multiplying and flourishing beyond our own lifetimes? We're trying to build something in our families that outlasts us. We're trying to establish a legacy. And 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 to continue um, the the life of God's covenant people in the community, and and you can't do that with just anybody, with just any old buster. And this won't happen because we think he or she is cute. The only this only happens through godly character and godly vision. And so, if we are celibate people hoping to be married. We gotta stop looking at biceps and chest. We gotta stop looking at legs and, and eyes. We gotta stop looking at superficial things and 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 resting our entire attraction on the fact that the person looks good. We gotta look for character and depth. We gotta look for vision and godliness. We gotta be those kind of people ourselves um, if we wish to attract those kinds of people. Now, the reality is that. Exile makes marriage both more difficult and more important. More difficult because, as we said before, the conditions of exile actually work against and disrupt normal family functioning and normal family um, organization. Exile introduces various kinds of turbulence, various kinds of disruption that um, can, can affect the ease or difficulty with which people come together and families are formed. I'm gonna give you a couple of illustrations. Uh, think about slavery in the United States and its impact on the black community. Slavery was a massive disruption of African family formation and African family functioning. It disrupted the, the patterns, the traditions, the, 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 the practices, even the freedom to marry itself. Exile did that. Or think about mass incarceration's impact on the availability and number of marriageable men who are marrying age and, and how incarceration impacts the relationship between uh, mom and dads who might be in prison uh, and, and their children it's a tremendous disruption, and, and it's, it's exile that produces that disruption. So marriage and family are more difficult, but they're also more important because healthy marriages improve stability and resilience in, difficulty, in difficult situations. Healthy marriages provide relational support and social capital that, that lead to flourishing. So, wherever a marriage is strong, or there's a strong marriage culture, it tends to produce well being, growth, vitality, stability. So, I'm not surprised then that in God's perfect word, when He instructs His people on how to flourish in exile, He provides them with a three generation vision for building a healthy marriage culture. A flourishing society is one where the norms of marriage and childbearing are upheld and practiced for generations. That's what we want to build in God's church, is God's elect exiles. And that's what we want to promote and support uh, in the community in which God has placed us. Which brings us to our second point. Our community needs strong marriages. Now there's a lot that's been happening with marriage over the decades both on the national level, and we can see its impact on the local level. The the situation with marriage uh, nationally uh, and the situation with our, our community follows what's been happening with marriage nationally over the last 60 or 70 years. Up to the 1960s and 70s, the marriage rate for African Americans was essentially equivalent with other groups. But lots began to change in the 60s and 70s. And there are no simplistic sort of answers as, as to sort of what all created which changes or, or what things we need to do now that would create the great fix. But there are some things that, that, that we could point to that have had significant impact on marriage in the country. First of all, there's a weakening of marriage culture in the entire country as a result of the sexual revolution. Secondly, there's the breaking apart of marriage and childbearing. Uh, birth control enables that, but also those changing attitudes about sex and marriage enable that. We've, we've gotten to a point where there's a much higher cultural tolerance for fathers leaving women and children uh, and, and shirking their responsibilities. Then beginning with the Nixon administration on through to the current president, there's a change um, to a kind of tough on crime rhetoric and policy approach in the country. And that's what's produced things like the mass incarceration of, of black and brown men. One researcher summed it up this way, the national trends this way. He wrote, when the imperative to marry was high, as it was through the mid 20th century in the United States, the vast majority of women married, notice, despite high levels of poverty. But as an individualistic ethos took hold, the dominant model of marriage shifted from institutional marriage based on gendered roles and economic cooperation to relatively fragile marriages based on companionship and divorce rates began to climb. Rising divorce rates, in turn, have further increased the ideal of individual self-sufficiency, encouraging delays in marriage and high levels of marital instability. As women and couples became increasingly aware of marriage's fragility, investments in some marital relationships may have declined, lowering the likelihood that they would last the growth in divorce may also have led some women and couples to be less willing to marry in the first place do you see the pattern you change the sort of cultural norms around marriage and that change of those cultural norms created instability in marriage you get rising divorce rates those rising divorce rates also have consequences people begin to delay marriage longer and longer Um, those who are in marriage are tempted to invest less less of themselves in the survival and the health of the marriage, rising in cohabitation as an alternative to marriage. And many people just decided never to marry at all. And all of that means more children raised without the advantage of both parents. All of that means more uh, instability in, in our lives, our mental health, our relational health, and so on. And all of that leads to bad outcomes for parents and kids. That's been the pattern for the entire country, all the ethnic groups in the country. But there have also been some things that have had particular impact uh, on African-American communities like ours. Southeast DC is 92% African-American. And there's some things that have happened in this picture nationally that have had a pronounced effect on our community. Here's a graph illustrating the graphic change in marriage and family life over the decades. Notice there on the graph, From 1890 to 1970, the marriage rates of black and white communities were essentially the same. In fact, from 1890 to 1970, the percent of never married black men and never married black women was lower than that of white men and women. It it hovered, you'll see there, between 7 to 10 percent of black men and women over 35 who had never married. Now, during that same period, the percent of black men who were incarcerated hovered around six to eight percent. Now, notice what happens beginning in 1970. This is on the heels of the sexual revolution of the 60s, and this is when, 1971, Nixon begins his famous war on crime. The war on crime turns into a war on drugs with Reagan and successive presidents, Bill Clinton, and so on. But that was really, beloved, a war on the black and brown community. And frankly, it was a war, though not designed this way, it was a war on marriage and family, as the chart shows. Notice now, the percentage of black men in prison rose from a steady 6 to 8% to over 25%. That's one in four black men by the year 2000. And notice what happens with the red line that represents the never married people. The never married rates also rose up to over 25% by 2000. It had been 70%. Now it was down to 25%, uh, 70% married, excuse me. Now it's it's risen to 25%. The the percent never married continued to climb even during the decade when prison percentages declined. What does that mean? The so-called war on drugs had a devastating effect on the availability of men prepared for marriage and family. Just broke apart the family in devastating ways. And the picture, we can see it even in a more local way. There's just under 19,000 families in Ward 8 here in Washington, DC. Right now, only 22% of families are headed by married couples, only 22% of families. 25% 25% of men are married. Black men are married. 22% of black women are married in the neighborhood. The percent of men who have never married is 63%, compared to 62% for women. So two-thirds of our men and women have never married in the community. Now, when you get again, when you consider that that percentage at one point was less than 10%, then you see how devastating the last five or six decades have been on our community, on our neighborhood this is all very critical because the social science research really confirms what the bible assumes that everyone adults and children do better in stable healthy marriages that involve biological parents with their children every word of what i just said is critical because the social science research really confirms what the bible assumes that everyone parents and children do better in stable, healthy marriages that involve the biological parents with their children. Now, every word in what I just said matters. It's not that ma- marriage is a magic bullet. It's not that if you can just get two people to sign a piece of paper, that's going to sort of change everything about their life uh, and, and make their life you know, happy and healthy and all that good stuff. Now, there's important things about the quality of the, of the marriage that, that matter. So, the marriages must be stable. That means that they, they are free from certain kinds of turbulence, like housing insecurity and food insecurity, which we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. The marriages must also be healthy. That means that the, the husband and wife know how to communicate well. They know how to resolve conflict between themselves. That means the relationship is free of abuse and neglect. Um, It's free of drug use and alcohol use and so on. So the the parents need to be healthy individually and with each other. And then also family structure matters here. So kids can do well in in any healthy family structure, whether it's two biological parents, whether it's uh, step parents together, um, whether it's a single mom or a single dad. Um, God is gracious, and kids can do well in any of those structures. But what the research tells us is um, that the stronger the structure, the better the children do. Right. So um, those who are in, say, blended families, are um, children on average do better than children who are raised just by one parent. And and those who are in married families with the two biological parents, um, they on average in the research do better than say blended families. Um, so. What we want to do is is understand that as we talk about marriage, we're not talking about just the promotion of any marriage, and we're not talking about, um, you know, one structure is necessarily for every family better. Um, There are good reasons for people to be single moms and dads uh, if they've left an abusive relationship, for example, or something like that. So this isn't about sort of prejudice about family structure, but it is taking the wisdom of the Bible and taking the wisdom of research and saying, let's aim for the ideal. Let's promote the ideal. Let's equip people for the ideal because it's in that ideal that we're going to best flourish. The Most of us are going to best flourish and our community is going to be best blessed. So, if we want to bless the block in the most powerful way, we need to find ways to repair the culture of marriage, to responsibly, responsibly encourage people to marry, to teach people to wait until marriage before having sex and before having children, and equip people with the skills to be healthy marriage partners and parents. Our community needs strong marriages, so we must rebuild the family if we want to flourish. We must resist that family-destroying practice and policies that affect our community. We must resist by advocacy, yes, but we must also resist most fundamentally by practicing marriage and family itself, just as God commands. So what are we going to do? Well, ARC, church family, we need a strategy as a church for building strong families. I don't know what all needs to go into this. I have some ideas. You've got some ideas. We've got to put those things together. Building strong families is is likely to be the most difficult part of our plan as exiles. I mean, for example, when it comes to producing housing, you know, all we need are are raw physical materials and money and labor, right? But when it comes to building families, you're actually dealing with people's mindsets and people's hearts with their experiences of hurt and fear, uh, with their hopes and and whatnot. That's, That's way more complex than nailing boards together. And so it's going to be a more difficult work, but it's also one of the most powerful things we can do through the word and the spirit to bless our community, to bless the church. So there's some things we need to do as a church that are inward focused and and outward focused. And and, and there's some things we need to do as we organize, some questions we need to take up as we organize. So as a church, just a few things here. We, We need to restart our mentor marriage ministry. We need to restart that ministry of, of, of couples who've been married seven years or old or more, uh, coming alongside younger couples uh, and and being just uh, resources to them, friends to them, encouragements to them, sharing your life with them, so that um, they sort of uh, have access to godly couples through those first seven years of marriage, which the research tells us are, are, are the most uh, unstable, right? You made it through seven years, congratulations, you're a veteran, you're on the other side. Doesn't mean everything is fixed, but uh, at least in terms of what the research says, you've got enough experience and wisdom to help somebody else through those seven years. We need to restart that as a way of uh, mentoring one another. Secondly, we need more uh, married small groups. Praise God for uh, the Covens and the Johnsons and the couples that have been clicking in with them. Pray that you have been encouraged. I've heard nothing but great reports from that. Uh, As we grow by God's grace, we're going to need more such groups. And so maybe the Lord will lay it on your heart to disciple couples in that way. Uh, And we're going to need more such groups, not just for members of ARC, but wouldn't it be wonderful to have marriage groups um, for couples in the community? May not even be Christians at, at this point. Uh, but who know that they want to be in a healthy, stable marriage and know that they need some encouragement and some help. So this is something that we could actually turn out in an outward facing way as a resource to the community, something that we're already doing. Number three, again, this is related to that. We we want to provide counseling to the community. So you guys have heard me speak before about a desire to have a couple of folks on staff at some point uh, who are, are, are counselors. Uh, and particularly a couple of sisters who are on staff as counselors. Um, that's really important because most of the households in our community are are headed by single parents, usually moms. That means that there's not a man around, but um, it, it does mean that the sister is carrying uh, probably way more burden than she should for the household. And and sisters in those situations need need confidants, need counselors, need need folks who sort of help them think wisely uh, about their lives. And so. Can you imagine with me a day where ARC might actually have a counseling center in the neighborhood? And we're not always sort of shuttling people outside the neighborhood to find counseling resources, but we actually have a, a center of professional and lay counselors uh, trained to care for um, folks in the community with uh, not necessarily deep-end clinical issues, but these kinds of counseling issues um, that the word itself addresses. So pray about that. And then number four, as a church, we, we want to prevent as many abortions as possible. You see what verse six says again, multiply there, do not decrease. The rate of abortion in our community is, is staggering. Um, we, we we would indeed be multiplying in much greater numbers. Um, if, if we sort of resource people in crisis pregnancies, resource women and young men um, who are considering life decisions, came alongside them, helped them to bring that child into the world, helped them to raise that child over the 18 years or 20 years of that child's life, provided for them an alternative community to the world um, where they could be nurtured and built up. Um, That's gotta be a part of what's on our heart when we come to verse six and we think about marriage and children for generations to come. It's a, it's a scourge on our country that, that millions of children Have their lives taken in the womb it, it all starts with being born It all starts with having life Nothing can happen unless life itself happens And we want to be people who are life-affirming Even in the midst of, of, of sort of a death-dealing society And so we, we need to figure out how we get involved in that And as you know, we're trying to organize ourselves in what we call PSA teams. Uh, So just like for housing, home ownership, and for uh, food security, we we want a a marriage and children's kind of PSA team that would have the goal, have the agenda of promoting and building and resourcing strong families, uh, a culture of marriage in our church and in the community. And that team has to take up some, some questions. I, I've listed a few of them here. I'm sure there are many others, but what can we do to promote stable, healthy marriages and nurturing, supportive parenting relationships? Are we a church that's welcoming to young and single mothers? You know What, what resources or practices uh, need to change um, in, in order to make ourselves a community that's spiritually and, and practically refreshing to young people, uh, young parents, young young mothers, young dads? How do we move the needle from 22% of our households being married households back to the 70% or higher that would have been true 50 years ago? What makes the policies and local programs? Uh, what strategies can we pursue that changed the narrative from uh, the destruction that's happened uh, to our families over the decades to flourishing and well being and independence. What what can we do to reduce or eliminate out of wedlock? Pregnancies and uh, abortions. How can we strengthen the sexual morality of our church and of the community? See, these things won't be addressed unless we organize ourselves and then commit to pray study and act PSA pray study and act to call down heaven's blessings on our efforts on behalf of families and children and to study the issues and to be thoughtful and careful and and not ideological and not partisan and not worldly but biblical in our thinking about these issues and then act in partnership with others and act in new initiatives to to promote uh, marriages Uh, to promote healthy, stable marriages, to promote um, sound and healthy and joyful child rearing. uh, And to do that, we pray for generations and impact for generations. That's what we want this PSA team to embrace. And so I wanna encourage you again to be before the Lord, asking the Lord to burden your heart for one of these teams, like you've never been burdened before and give you grace to lean in in prayer to lean in with study, to lean in with action with other brothers and sisters from the church to impact these areas for our flourishing and the flourishing of our neighborhood. We're going to assign every member to one of these groups. And so we we pray that you would be moved by what the Lord puts on your heart to volunteer. But if not, we'll help you sort of find one of the places where you can plug in and let's put our shoulders to the plow and do this work. let me conclude with just a touch more theology i want us to remind us of things that we were thinking about in our previous sermon on the theology of the body and a theology of marriage and celibacy because even though god here has commanded in the old testament with israel um, that they would uh, marry and have children and take wives for their sons and daughters multiply and do not decrease something remarkable has happened since the days of isaiah jesus has come he's come into the world preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and in fact the kingdom has broken in and 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 the new testament writers tell us this remarkable thing that that in heaven there's only one marriage that's the marriage between jesus the bridegroom and his bride the church that all of our earthly marriages are temporary and they're they're signs there are signs pointing to the marriage between Christ and the church. And even our, our, our standing in life as celibate people, that too is a sign if we're single. It's a sign pointing to our satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ if we are, are, are single. We are already married to him and, and in our singleness we, we have this privilege of only being married to him and, and having a foretaste of complete satisfaction that comes in the relationship with him so we're looking at at jeremiah 29 we, we don't want to forget what the new testament teaches us about the theology of the body and the theology of marriage and what we want to stress here is is that the most important marriage is the marriage between the church and christ and so the question i have for you this morning is are you married to jesus have you come to a place where you have accepted his proposal that you give up your life as a person who does not know him and is not related to him and has been going your own way in sin and that instead you form a life with him you turn and you make certain promises to him just as he has made promises to you his vow to you is that if you come to him turning from your sin And putting your faith in Him, your trust in Him as your Lord and Savior. Then He will forgive your sins and cleanse you of them. He will take you as His own. He will be at one with you spiritually. And you will forever be His and He will forever be yours. And the danger of hell, you'll never have to face. The danger of judgment, you'll never have to face. The danger of being cast away from God and from his presence, you'll never have to face. Because Christ will keep you as his own. He will bring you into his kingdom. And you will be a part of his family. You'll be, as it were, his bride. He will keep you spotless and without blemish. And he will sing over you in love. You will know God and be known by God. If you turn from sin and put your faith in Jesus, you will be born again and raised to newness of life, just as he was raised from the grave. So this morning, that's how you marry Jesus. You confess your sins, you turn away from them, you put your faith in Jesus as the one who was crucified to pay the penalty for your sins and raised from the grave so that you would have eternal life. And then you begin to follow him in faith both as your Lord and as your husband. Trust in Him. Enter His love. Live forever through faith in Christ. When you have that marriage, then you can work in all the right ways on all the other marriages that lead to flourishing. Let's pray again. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Thank you for inspiring Jeremiah to write the words of this letter and this chapter. Thank you for preserving your word till this day. Help us, O Lord, to apply your word faithfully and true. And grant us, O Lord, the kind of flourishing that goes on for generations in our church and in our community. Lord, bless the block, we pray. Bless the block with strong marriages bless the block with um, children raised in the fear and admonition of the lord uh, bless the block to sort of overflow in your in your spirit and revival the oh, lord protect our marriages strengthen them we we are not experts at marriage we are grace dependent people lord i pray for marriages among us that are struggling give give grace the husband and wife to forgive, to reconcile, to serve one another, to die to self. And I pray for marriages that are that are flourishing, Lord. Extend that season of flourishing. Uh, keep them attentive on one another and doing the things that um, lead to life. And I pray for those who wish to be married. Grant grace, O oh Lord, and raise up spouses, Lord, who have a Jeremiah 29, six vision. And bring men and women together, um, Lord, that that they might flourish in this way. And I pray for those who are celibate and who wish to enjoy their singleness. Thank you for giving them that freedom. And thank you that um, singleness is not incompleteness. They are complete in you. And uh, I pray that you would grant them grace to be content, to be self-controlled. Grant them grace to serve you with a whole heart, I pray. Do this, I pray, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name.